0: Jude, chapter 1 of 1, verse 1. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called. Mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation. It was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness or license, And denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we come to this letter that was written by this man named Jude. And we ask the question, who was Jude? When we read the New Testament, we recognize that there were several men that carried this name. Now, obviously, it's not Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed the Lord. But we know of at least two other Judes, one of them being another of the apostles. Now, in Matthew and Mark's gospel, Jude is called Lebius or Thaddeus. But in Luke's gospel and in John's gospel, he's called Judas or Jude. And so this man that carries these two names. And we also learn in the gospel of Luke that Judas, the apostle, had a brother named James. And so there's a possibility that the author of the book of Jude was the Apostle Jude, but not obviously Judas Iscariot. The other possibility was the half brother of Jesus. Now, Jesus had two, he had a few half brothers, but two of them were named James and Judas. And so when Jude here identifies himself as the brother of James, he does not mention that he was the half brother of Jesus, but it's possible that he was. Now, most likely that is the man who is the author of the book of Jude, the one who is the half brother of Jesus, not the apostle. And the reason why I believe that is because in verse 17 of Jude, he numbers himself apart from the apostles. He references the message that they gave, and he does not include himself as one of them, which if it was Judas the apostle, he probably would have done that. And so the author of the book, whom we're hearing from tonight, is most likely the man who was the half-brother of Jesus and the full brother of James, the author of the book of James. And so he writes, and his audience, he tells us there in the first verse, is them that are sanctified those that are preserved in Jesus Christ, and those that are called. Now, sanctified is one of those Bible words that we hear from time to time, and we don't really know exactly what it means. We just know that when we hear the word sanctified, we're probably talking about God, or there's some Bible verse that's attached to it. But what the word sanctified literally means is someone who's been set apart. To be sanctified means that you have been um, removed from one group of something and separated unto another group. And so when it says to those that are sanctified by God the Father, it's talking about those that have been called out of the world, the general population of humanity, and set aside into God's fold of people exclusively set apart for him. And so he's talking about sanctified people. Now, from that word sanctified, it's where we get the word saint. It's kind of the root of the word, saint or "sanct," sanctified ones. So when we talk about saints in the church or in Bible study or in Christian terms... We're not talking about people that have died and have been kind of like elevated to this level that we would grant them sainthood because their lives proved out to be that, but rather the Bible, when it talks about saints, is talking about anyone who's been sanctified by God the Father. So if you're here tonight and you're a Christian, you used to be in the world and God saved you out of the world and he brought you into his family, you are sanctified and because of that, you are considered by God a saint. And so the author writes to you, to them who are sanctified. Now, not only are we sanctified by God the Father, but we are also preserved by Jesus Christ. That is, that God the Father, through His Son, has not only pulled us out, but He is keeping us in His fold. that's a remarkable thing to think about. When you think about all of the temptations and all of the things that are, are, are seeking to pull us away from God, to think that God is actively, through the present ministry of His Son, keeping us in the place where we are set aside for Him, He is doing that constantly. And then third of all, it says that it's written to those that are called. And if you're a Christian here tonight, one of the reasons that you're a Christian is because you've been called by God into the salvation that He has called us into. So the audience that Jude is seeking to reach in his short letter here is the church. He's not writing to the unbeliever. He's writing to the Christian, to the believer. Now, the occasion of his writing and the reason for it, he gives to, it, gives to us in verses 3 and 4. And what he tells us there right at the beginning of verse 3 is that there was a pulling or a tugging upon his heart to write unto the church concerning the common salvation. Those are the words that he uses there in the verse. In other words, what he's saying is that there there was a pull in my heart to write unto you, and the subject of my writing was going to be the general salvation that you and I have. And I wanted to write to you about it. It was in my heart to write to you about this general salvation. But then he says that he felt it needful. And the word that he uses there for needful means that there was constraint that was laid upon him by the Holy Spirit. And so as he had it in mind to write a generic epistle concerning the salvation, when he set forth to do it, a conviction from the Holy Spirit came upon him that was needful for him to write a different message than what he had initially set out to write. And the new direction that the Spirit took him in is that it is essential that we earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered unto the saints. That's what he says his reason is for writing this letter, to encourage us that we need to fight for or stand up for or defend the faith that was once delivered unto the saints and the reason why he felt pressed to do this he tells us in verse 4 is because there are certain men who have crept into the church into the assembly of god's people unawares meaning that they are they've gone without recognition they look like everyone else they sound like every other christian but they're not christians and he says that their desire or their agenda is to change The message of god and to change the definition of what this faith is from what god made it to be and to make it something altogether different so that's the agenda of these false brethren of these men that have crept in and jude is writing to us so that we'll be on guard against those men and so that we might also then take it in our own hand To defend the faith and earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered unto the saints. So the reason for the book of Jude, if you're one that likes context as a background for why a letter is written or why it's in the Bible, the answer is so that we might earnestly, that means with zeal, with passion, contend or fight and defend the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. So the question that's before us in this exhortation that Jude is giving to us that we're to contend for this faith is what is the faith that we are contending for? What is the faith that was once delivered unto the saints? The word faith that Jude uses when he says that we're to earnestly stand up for it, in the Greek, the word is pistis. And what it means is the conviction of the truth of a thing. So the conviction of a truth of a thing and the word faith can be used as either a verb or a noun to be used as a verb it is an action that is it's the act of believing so if i exercise faith in a given matter then i have employed that word as a verb i'm acting on a conviction that i have but jude uses it not as a verb but rather as a noun now a noun again for Those of you that remember those days in English, a noun is a person, place, or thing. It's an object. And what Jude is saying concerning this faith is not that it's an action per se, though faith is an action, but faith is also an object. It's a thing. It's a something. And he's saying that that is the thing that we need to stand up for. So it's the body of truth that defines what biblical Christianity is. That's what Jude means when he says that we're to stand up for or defend the faith, that we're to defend the body of truth that is biblical Christianity. The writer of Hebrews, in seeking to define faith for us in chapter 11, that famous chapter that we call the hall of faith, he gives the definition of faith this way, biblically, Hebrews 11, verse one. He says, now faith is the substance of, of things hoped for now right there right off the bat he's making faith an object isn't he he says that faith is the substance of things hoped for and then secondarily he says that it's the evidence of things unseen meaning that though this faith is a definite substance and a definite something it's an invisible something and an invisible substance it's not something that we can look at uh, physically with our eyes, but it is something that absolutely exists. Now, if we're going to defend this faith in what it is, then we must first define it and know what it is. What, what, what strikes me about this faith, the way that Jude uses uh, the terms and the way that he presents it to us, is that this faith is absolutely exclusively singular in its identity. Notice the words that he uses in the sentence when he says that we're to contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. He calls it the faith. He doesn't say this faith, which would imply that there might be others. He doesn't say a faith, meaning it could be one of many. But he says it has a definite something. That is, this is the faith. Then he says that was once delivered unto the saints. It is exclusive and it is absolute in its definition and in what it is. It is common. He says it's a common faith and that means that there is only one. Now notice what he says concerning it back up in verse three. He says that I took it in hand to write unto you concerning the common salvation. I want you to take note of that word common because what he's saying is that it's a common salvation that was once delivered unto the saints. Now, when he says saints, again, we're talking about all of the people of God. And that means that we're talking about the people of God as far back as Adam and as far forward as the last person that will be saved. And so every person of God from the beginning all the way to the end, we are the saints. And what Jude is saying is that this faith, what it is, has once been delivered unto the saints. So what does that mean? It means that this faith that you and I hold and that we're called to defend, that we have today, is the same exact faith that was instituted and given to Adam way back in the beginning. It's not an evolving faith. It's not a faith that has developed over time. It's not something that is progressive in its revelation in the sense that it's changing as times change. It isn't defined by culture. It's not defined by the preference of an individual. That is the way a person wants to believe. Well, I take this part of the faith, but I take this part of that faith. And this is what I call faith and what you call faith might be different. But none of that is allowable because the faith that was once delivered unto the saints is authored by God, delivered unto men, and he's the one that sets the definition for what it is. It is the faith that was once delivered unto the saints. And what that means is this, is that on the first day of God's spoken word of creation, when he said, let there be light, and there was light, on that day, The faith that you and I have today was already established in its entirety. The definition of biblical Christianity, of God's religion, if you want to say it that way, was fully ordained and established on the first day, and that's what it is. And so this faith is not developing, but it is unfolding. You say, what do you mean by that? Meaning that on the first day, Adam might not have understood all that we have in the full revelation of God. That doesn't mean that it was less than what it is. It's been unfolding. The revelation of the faith has progressed through history. But the absolutes of what makes the faith what it is has always been from the very beginning. And even as God is the same yesterday, today, and forever... So also the faith that he delivered unto his people is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So it is exclusively singular in its identity and it is absolute in what it is. It cannot change uh, in the whole thing. And so it's important for us to understand that we are not defending something that we have built, but rather we're defending something that's been given to us by God. So what is it that we're called to preserve and defend? How do we define the faith that was once delivered unto the saints? What makes Christianity what it is? And if you're taking notes, just a few things for you to write down in our study tonight. And first of all, what we know about this faith is that it is the faith of the cross. It is the faith of the cross. And probably the most important pillar, the very foundation of what makes our faith what it is, is that it is the faith of the cross. In Genesis chapter 3, the account is given to us of the curse when Adam and Eve took of the fruit that God forbade, and the curse came upon mankind. And when God discovered that they had, um, not discovered, but uncovered the, the, the fact that they had done this, he called Adam and Eve to himself and he asked them to give an account of what they had done. And Adam immediately blamed the woman, and the woman immediately blamed the serpent. She said, He tricked me, and I did eat. And when God heard that, he looked and his first words in this curse were directed towards the serpent. And he told the serpent that because you have done this, you're going to crawl on your belly and the dust of the ground is going to be your food. And then he said in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, he said that I will put enmity, I will make enemies between you and the woman. And that's true. I have yet to meet a woman that genuinely loves snakes. There is enmity between the serpent the and the woman most men too but he says i will put enmity between you and the woman and listen and between thy seed and her seed and then he says he that is the seed of the woman will bruise your head but you will bruise his heel now what that is right there is a prophecy concerning The seed of the woman, and there's no woman in the world that has seed except one, and that would be the Virgin Mary who gave birth to a man without being with a man first. It was a prophecy concerning Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that would come into this world as a man, and how he would bruise the head of the serpent in the very same moment that his heel was being bruised upon a cross. And what God was prophesying right there in the very beginning on the first day that the curse came into the world is that the solution for the curse would come through the cross. This faith that we have has been a faith of the cross from the very beginning. God knew that that's how he would solve the problem that came into the world as the fruit of our sin. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, just a few moments after the curse was completely dispersed upon the man and the woman and upon the creation itself, the Bible tells us there that the Lord God made coats of skins for the man and the woman, and he clothed them with them to cover them and to cover their nakedness. Now, how did the Lord God make coats of skins for the man and for his wife? In order to do it, he had to kill an innocent animal. How was their nakedness, their sinfulness, their vulnerability, how was it covered? It was covered in the slaying of something innocent in order that they might be covered in their sin in their transgression. It was the beginning of what we call substitutionary atonement, an innocent something being killed in place of the guilty party, Adam and Eve being the guilty party their sin was covered by blood. And God established right there at the very beginning that the wages of sin is death and that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Now, just a short time after that, Adam and Eve gave birth to Cain and Abel. And Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground because he was a farmer. And his offering was rejected. His works, his effort, All the toil and sweat that he gave in the sincerity of his heart was rejected. Wherein at the same time, Abel, who was a shepherd, brought an offering of the firstlings of his flock and the fat thereof, which he bestowed no labor upon at all, except for the fact that he was the shepherd that brought two sheep together, and they did the work and brought forth some offspring. And he offered that to God, and his offering was accepted by God. God had respect to the offering of Abel. And it caused this rivalry and jealousy to rise up between Cain and Abel. And ultimately, Abel was killed because of it. Why was Abel's offering accepted and Cain's rejected? Because Abel offered according to what God had ordained would be accepted. And that is that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And Abel offered obediently, and that's why Hebrews chapter 11 tells us that it was by faith that Abel offered a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. Why? Because the faith of Abel was the faith of the cross. And this faith that we have revolves around the cross. By the time we come to the life of Abraham, we're introduced to whom the Bible calls the father of the faith or the father of faith. We're told in Genesis chapter 15 that God gave Abraham a promise, and Abraham questioned the possibility of that promise. And God said, Abraham, I'm going to do this thing. And Abraham's response to God's promise was that he believed, or that he had faith in what God said. And God said in Genesis chapter 15, that that faith that Abraham had was accounted unto him for righteousness. Meaning that it was by faith that Abraham was declared righteous before God. Now, what marked the life of Abraham? Everywhere he went, he built two things, a tent and an altar. The altar being the token or the sign of sacrifice or offering. In Genesis chapter 22, God told Abraham to offer his only son that he loved. And the son of the father Abraham carried the wood of the offering up the hill. He was fastened to it. The knife was raised, and just before plunging it in, God interrupted Abraham's action, spared the life of his son, and in his place there was a ram with a crown of thorns His horns caught in the thorns in the thicket. And God said, Offer that instead. And Abraham offered that unto the Lord. And then Abraham declared, after witnessing this whole drama that god had him act out the son carrying the wood up the tree the father fastening the son to the altar and then a crown of thorns an offering being substituted in its place abraham declared in genesis 22 he said in the mountain of the lord it shall be seen speaking of something that was coming yet future what was that something it was the cross when God the Father would bind the wood to his son, and his son would carry it up the hill and then be bound to that altar, only his life wouldn't be spared, the crown of thorns would be pressed upon his head, and He would give his life as an offering for the sin of mankind. It's an offering of the cross, the cross or the faith, of the cross, rather, in the whole Bible, as you go through, from Genesis to Revelation, what we see is the cross. We see the Passover being instituted, the blood of an innocent lamb being put upon the head and then dripping down to the threshold and on the two doorposts in the shape of a cross, the blood being upon the door causing the death angel to pass over. We see Moses on top of the hill when Amalek and Joshua were fighting down in the valley and Moses in the middle with his arms raised and someone on his right hand and on his left hand holding his arms up, three men on a hill, the one in the middle with his arms raised and through that, Joshua had the victory in the battle below, a picture of the cross. The entire Levitical system of the law and the offerings that were given and the shedding of the blood, all of it, a picture of the cross. The prophets in their ministry and what they would foretell and proclaim of that which was coming, all pointing to the cross of Jesus Christ. And the cross is the central theme of the faith that we hold, the faith that we have. And it always was, it is right now, and it always will be, the cross central You say, why? Why is it a faith of the cross? Why is the cross essential? Number two, if you're taking notes, is because this faith is also a faith of grace. Notice what Jude says in verse four of of this chapter that's before us in this short letter. He says that the imposters that have come in have turned the grace of God into lasciviousness or into license. They've changed the grace of God from what it was intended to be into something else. And so what is the grace of God that Jude is talking about that is a part of this faith and that's connected to the cross? Well, grace simply means the complete and absolute forgiveness of a debt. That's what grace is. So you have someone who's indebted to someone else, and the one who holds the debt forgives the person who owes the money, and that's the definition of what grace is. The the debt is forgiven completely. My wife just uh, in the past week, she borrowed from the LaGrange Library. Um, They actually loan out tickets to the Children's Museum in Poughkeepsie, and so you can borrow the tickets and then you can go to the museum for free. But if you don't return the tickets on time, it's 25 bucks. So about 20 minutes before the library closed on the day that the tickets were due, and we were about a half an hour away from the library, my wife said, And she called the library and asked if there was any way to renew the tickets. (laughs) And apparently she got someone who used to work at the DMV and now works at the library. (laughs) What does that mean? No grace. (laughs) And so she said, well, it's 25 bucks. I mean, the library is closed tomorrow and the next day. If I get them there, then no one can possibly lose out on this thing. And the lady said, I'm sorry. The fee is the fee. And Georgia said, my daughter works there. Is there anybody else that I can talk to? And the lady said, not today. (laughs) (laughs) And so my wife, you know my wife, you know how she is, right? Thank you. you (laughs) And you know what she meant when she said thank you? She meant thank you because she's genuinely a nice person, you know? (laughs) But she called me the next day that the library was open and she said, I got the fee waived. We didn't have to pay the 25 bucks, got the right person. Why? Because she found someone that could extend grace. Someone that had the ability and the mercy to forgive the debt and do what they had to do. Now, thankfully, the law of the library is not the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot change and is established forever meaning that that rule is not something that's written in, like, the government chronicle somewhere that, you know, someone is breaking the law by bending that rule. They have the authority to do that. But when we talk about grace in the context of the Christian faith and we talk about the debt that that grace would be applied to, we're talking about something altogether different than money. Nobody owes God any money ever at any time. But every man, woman, and child that has ever lived is indebted to God in what we would call a sin debt. The law of God states that the wages of sin is death, meaning that if a person commits a sin, then they are bound under the law of a perfect God that their blood must be shed on account of that sin. And the only way for them to not have their blood shed is for somehow the debt of that sin to be wiped away. Now, God, the Bible tells us, is perfect and God is just. And so for God to be perfect and God to be just, God cannot change the rule that he has made. Otherwise, he's imperfect and he's unfair because he's bending rules that are set in perfection. So in order for God to extend grace to a sin debt, somehow that sin debt has to be paid. It cannot just be forgiven just because. That's where the cross comes in, because that's what Jesus was doing upon the cross. Jesus was absorbing the punishment, thereby paying off the debt of all the sin of the world. God doesn't just forgive the sin saying, well, I'm God and I can just throw it away and pretend that it didn't happen and look the other way. Something has to be done with it. And so God came into the world in human flesh. He lived the life of perfection that could rightfully earn heaven. But then he died the sinner's death in place of the sinner. And absorbed the penalty and punishment that that sin deserved. Thereby releasing his righteous life. And he extends it now to whosoever will take it. As an act of grace through faith. And so the cross paid the price and enabled God to show mercy and grace through the person of his son, Jesus Christ. That's what it means when it says in 2 Corinthians Chapter 5, verses 19 and through 21, Paul the Apostle there writes, and he says, To wit that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and has committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's place be reconciled to God. And here's how, verse Verse 21. For he, that is God, has made him, that is Christ, to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So the cross satisfies the payment for sin unto grace. Jesus paid the debt. And for us to deny the grace of God or to change the grace of God into something else is to deny the person of Christ and to put away the cross or to put the cross in some way behind us. So this faith is a faith of grace. Our sin being transferred upon the person of Christ and his righteousness being transferred upon us through faith. Grace being given. So it's a faith of the cross. It is a faith of grace. Thirdly, it is the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. Another one of the issues that Jude takes up with the men who have crept in unawares is that they deny the only Lord God and the Lord Jesus Christ. That is that they're seeking to change or in some way corrupt or diminish the person of Christ as this faith relates to him in his existence. Now, the problem with that is that Jesus is what makes the cross and grace available. Without Jesus, there is no cross and there is no grace extended. So to change the person of Christ or to deny that he is essential in this salvation or in this faith is to make the faith something other than what God wants delivered unto the saints and thereby it is disqualified. It cannot save. It becomes a worthless faith. And so it's essential that this faith be the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is who the Bible says that he is, that he did what the Bible says that he did, that he was qualified to do it, and that his sacrifice was acceptable, and thereby it can be transferred upon us for righteousness. And to change that is to change the faith. Now, someone's going to say, or someone is thinking, now isn't Jesus or the Lord Jesus Christ, isn't he the New Testament faith? And isn't Moses the Old Testament faith? I mean, where was Jesus for the first 4,000 years of man's history? At that point, was it the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ? Wasn't it the faith of the Ten Commandments or the faith of the law or the faith of Moses? And the answer to that is no. Jude has said emphatically to us that this is the faith that was once delivered unto the saints. It has always been the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, well, then what was the purpose of the Ten Commandments and of the law? Romans chapter 3, verse 20, the Apostle Paul tells us. He says, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. What does that mean? It means that the existence of the law reveals the sinful condition of man. Without the law, I don't know that I'm a sinner, and therefore I don't know that I need a Savior. But when the law comes across my understanding, and I compare my life with what God says is the standard of righteousness... I come under conviction and I realize that my life is not in alignment with what God calls holy and saved. And so therefore, I realize now that I need a savior. And so the law was intended to drive me to God's salvation in the person of Christ. That's what Paul means when he says that by the law is the knowledge of sin. Paul wrote to the Galatians in Galatians chapter 2, verse 21, and he said this. He says, I do not frustrate the grace of God. He says, for if righteousness or salvation is come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. Meaning that if the law ever had the ability to save a human being, then Jesus did not need to die. His death on the cross was in vain. And so for me to think that the law can save me, it's for me to deny the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. For me to seek to add my effort to his salvation is to frustrate God and to frustrate his grace because it's impossible for the law to ever save a human being. It cannot be done. So what does that mean? It means that God saved us by himself, through himself, and for himself. And he doesn't need our help nor anyone else's. He did it alone. It's the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's upon him that we stand and upon him alone. It's also a faith, number four, that produces a holy life another issue that jude takes up with those men that have crept in unawares he says that they have turned the grace of god into lasciviousness or into license what does that mean it means that these false teachers have taken this concept of grace and made it permission to sin well because i'm not saved by keeping the law And because I'm saved by grace through faith, and it has nothing to do with me, and because Jesus has paid the price for all sin, then therefore that allows me to just go out and sin, and I don't have to worry about it anymore because Jesus paid it all, all to M-I-O, and so I'm just going to continue on sinning. Well, what Jude says here is that that's an evil position for any person to take. Paul brings up that issue in Romans and he says, well, should we then sin because then grace will abound? And his answer to it is, God forbid. No, grace does not give me permission to sin. That's not the idea in the whole thing. It doesn't embolden sin. What grace does is grace empowers obedience. How? Remember what Jude said at the very beginning? He said to them that are sanctified, right? We're set apart unto God. What does that mean? It means that when we receive grace, we're brought into a relationship with the living God. We're not brought into a religion. We're not brought into a creed or into church attendance or a set of ideals. We're brought into communion and fellowship with the living God. We're literally reconciled, meaning that we were once two, but now we are one with the creator God who made us. He gives us himself and he gives us his spirit. And when God and man come into fellowship in the person of the Holy Spirit, there's a transformation that takes place inside and there's power given into life to become like him and to do the things that he's asked. And so grace doesn't give me the license to go out and sin, but rather grace empowers me to live a holy life. And what do you know about relationships? You become like the people that you're with, right? Right? So if we're in a relationship with God And we've been made one with God Then it stands to reason that the grace of God is not going to produce sin in the life of a believer But rather it's going to produce holiness And thus it's a faith of holiness What did Jeremiah say in the days when the nation of Israel had gone apostate in Jeremiah chapter 6? He said look at the condition that's around you You call yourselves the people of God, but everything is a mess And he said that the solution is to ask God for the old paths wherein is the good way and you will find rest for your souls what are the old paths god is the same yesterday today and forever god is holy and peter says to us that as he is holy so also ought we to be holy in all of our manner of living how it comes through relationship with him As we spend time with him, we become like him, and thus a holy life becomes the outcome of it. It's a faith of holiness. It's also, number five, it's a faith that is under attack. That's what Jude is writing all about, isn't it? Because he says that we should earnestly contend or fight for the faith that was once delivered unto the saints. And the faith that was once delivered unto the saints has been under attack from the very first day that it was given by God into the world. God has an enemy and his name is Satan. He is the devil. Now, he is not God's counterpart, he's not co-equal with God, he doesn't have God's power. Satan is an angel, a fallen angel, of the rank of a cherubim, which is not even a very high-ranking angel. He wouldn't want you to know that, but that's what he is. But he is the arch enemy of our God and everything that is God Satan hates and everything that God loves Satan hates and Satan is extremely hateful towards men because God loves men and Satan is extremely jealous of man. And do you know why? Because man has been created to occupy a place that Satan wanted but could never have because he wasn't made for it. And so Satan has been seeking to corrupt the faith of God from the very beginning, because in so doing, he corrupts man, and corrupted man misses out on salvation, and thereby God is grieved, and man never reaches what God has made him for. And so there's an enemy and an attack on this faith there has been from the very beginning, and there will be unto the very end. Now, Satan's method of attack is to corrupt the faith and to move the boundaries and to confuse the definition and to make it something that it's not. And if he can succeed and he can get you and I to believe and to stand on something that is false, then he has put us in a place where we are not candidates for God's salvation. And so it's a faith that is under attack. That's what Satan did to Eve, right? He lied to her. Hath God said? That's not true. If you do, then you will become, and she believed it, and so she was moved aside from where she was standing by faith. He did the same thing with Cain. When Cain thought that his offering would be accepted because it was done with so much effort, he moved the lines. Hey, God will reward your effort. No, God rewards faith. That's the the faith. That's what it is. It's what happened in the days of Nimrod and the Tower of Babel. It was an attack upon the faith that if we build a tower that reaches up to heaven, then we can reach God through our own efforts. And God confused the tower and they left off building it because man can never reach God through his efforts. It's a false faith. And that's what Satan always seeks to bring into the world. Even the false prophets of the modern day, as much as the men who crept in in Jude's day, Satan seeks to move man outside the lines of saving faith. So it's a faith that's under attack. And sixthly, because it's a faith that saves, it's a faith that's worth fighting for. What does Jude say? He says that we should earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered unto the saints. Now, why is this faith worth fighting for? Why would we be called and exhorted by this man to fight for this faith and to earnestly contend for it? Do you know why? Peter writes to us in 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter chapter 1 verse 7. And he says that our faith is more precious than gold. In other words, there's more value in the faith... That's before us than even if we were to possess all of the gold in all of the world You say why what makes our faith more valuable than all the gold in the world? You know what the answer is the answer is romans chapter 3 verse 28. You know what it says. It says this It says therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith Without or apart from the deeds of the law The reason why our faith is worth fighting for and it holds the value that it does is because it works Jude calls it a common salvation, right? It saves. It means I was headed for hell and I was separated from God, but because of the faith that God has given to me, I now stand complete in him and I'm headed for heaven. I've been given eternal life. What's more valuable than eternal life? And so because the value of what this salvation is, we're called to fight for it. That's the call. This year, we started at our home raising bees. I know. (laughs) (laughs) crazy right I mean you know we've done chickens we didn't do so good with chickens we did cats we didn't do so good with cats we've had a fish for about a year we've done pretty good with the fish you know but now we're gonna we're gonna try bees you know and bees are nuts but they're extremely interesting I mean when you you know stand there and I'm sitting here wearing this bee suit and I look like you know Doc from back to the future you know and can't see in this whole thing and I'm I'm like why am I doing this I'm putting my hands in a beehive but this is crazy you know but the bees are actually remarkable they're amazing creatures and when you watch a hive and just kind of observe the way that it works it's an amazing thing to see the bees it's a whole lot like a church they're a family. They're very organized. There's a purpose behind what they're doing. Every different bee has a role that he fulfills. They love to serve and to work. And if they can't work and they run out of room, then they'll split. And they'll find another, they'll raise up a new queen and they'll swarm and they'll go to a different place. There's so much like a church, so many parallels between a beehive and a church. And so I'm standing there and I'm kind of watching all this and I'm marveling in the thing and they're slamming into my mask, telling me to get out of their space. And I don't want to be in their space. They don't want me in their space. You know, there's this whole agreement thing going on. And I'm thinking to myself, why in the world did God give these things stingers? I mean, it would just make life so much easier if they didn't have stingers. And the answer came as quick as the thought did. And the answer is because we're dealing with honey. And because there is a precious commodity that's being produced by the hive, God has equipped them with something that is very effective in fending off predators and thieves, things that would seek to corrupt the hive and thus steal the honey. And when I thought that, immediately what came into my mind was Psalm chapter 19, verse 10, where the psalmist David declares that the word of God, which by the way, defines our faith, doesn't it? He says that it is more precious than gold and that it is sweeter than honey from the honeycomb. Now, that's not the only reference in the Bible that equates God's truth to honey. Yet another parallel where the church is like a beehive. We have a very precious commodity. What is it? Truth. We have the word of God. And therefore, God calls us to earnestly contend for it. And sometimes that means that we have to sting. God's equipped us with stingers. And the reason is because it's very essential that we preserve the truth. If we don't earnestly contend for it and it is allowed to be corrupted, then we lose the preciousness of what it is, the value of what it is, and therefore, thereby, the church becomes nothing. It becomes void and vacant. And so God has raised up within the church apologists. God has given us, each of us as Christians, the clear clarion command that we are to earnestly defend the faith. Peter says that we're to be ready always to give an answer. That means a defense for the hope that is within us with meekness and fear. But you know what's an interesting thing about the bees? When we come back to that analogy for a minute and the defense of the hive. First of all, the bees don't want to sting. That's not their intent. They're not looking for someone to sting. They don't want to do it. They're reluctant to do it. And not all of them do do it. Only the males sting. The evangelists, the reproducers, the females, they don't sting. That's why often you'll see an evangelist and you'll say, he's watered down. He never hits the hard things, you know. No, no, it's just a female bee, that's all. He's not a defender. But there are defenders that God has raised up. But here's the other thing about the bee, is that once the bee stings, what happens to it? It dies. So what's the point? Listen, when you're defending the faith, and we're going to get into this next week when we talk about Jude's content, the rest of what he has to say. Be very careful when you pull out your stinger because not only is it dangerous to those that will be touched by it, but it could be detrimental to you as well. Amazing to think about, but we're called to fight for this faith. We're going to close. The musicians can come. Finally, did the musicians here, the music, I know that at this point it becomes like Charlie Brown's teacher, right? Like, wop, 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 wop. You know, yes, ma'am, you know. Finally, concerning this faith as we close, it is a faith that is gifted to men from God and must be received. The Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus in chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. And he says this, he says, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. So salvation is by grace through faith. And then he says, and that, that being the faith, the faith that saves, is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God and not earned by works, lest any man should boast. Meaning that this faith that we're talking about, the faith of the cross, and the faith of grace, and the faith of the Lord Jesus, and the faith of holiness, and the faith that works, and the faith that's worth fighting for and is under attack, this faith is extended by God, this invisible substance, to man as a gift, not something that could ever be earned, but God in his benevolence wants to save man that's been separated from him through the fall. But it's not given only, it must also be received. John chapter 1, verse 12, John writes and he says this. It says that whosoever received him, to them gave he the right to be called the sons of God or the children of God. And so what God does is he extends this precious faith that he has established, ordained, and paid for, and he offers it as a gift to whosoever would be willing to take it. But then he leaves the ball in our court of whether or not we're going to be open, willing, and if we're going to receive that gift and say yes to the offer that God has made. And so this faith that brings us into the relationship is initiated by God But it's consummated by us when we receive the gift that God freely extends and that he freely gives. Here's the truth. The truth is that God loves you, that God knows you, that he's willing to take you, and he's willing to take you right where you are. You say, well, how do I know if God is giving or wanting to give to me the gift of faith? How do I know if I have faith, faith, this invisible something that's so hard to understand? Is God giving me the gift of faith to believe saving faith? Has God given me this faith? Do I possess this faith? How do I even know? Here's how you know. This is how you know if God is offering you saving faith. Number one is that there's a conviction in your heart. That you recognize that your life is not in a right relationship with him. That your sins have separated you from him. That you don't understand or know the meaning of life. That even if you want to do good, you find that you don't have the power to do it. And you're awake to that realization that things aren't right within my life. There's an agitation in my soul and I'm not at rest. That's called conviction. And it's the first thing that happens when God is knocking on your heart and seeking to give you saving faith. He brings conviction. But secondly, what comes with that conviction is also a faint glimmer of hope. And that hope is that somewhere there's an answer to this. I know things aren't right, but I know that there's an answer and maybe just maybe i'm a candidate for it And so hope and then number three There's a willingness to receive the faith that god is extending Now some people have conviction And they might even have hope but it's a false hope because they're not willing to receive the way that god has made for them Well, I want to be saved. I want to go to heaven. I want this unsettledness to go away but The Lord Jesus Christ, holiness, the faith that was once delivered, the cross. I mean, maybe parts of it, but, well, then you don't have faith. But if your conviction and your hope is also accompanied with a willingness to say, God, I recognize what you've done for me. I recognize that from the foundation of the world, you established and ordained that it would be your son that would be bled out upon a cross with a crown of thorns pressed into his head. After enduring the greatest beating that any human being has ever endured, after going through separation from you and literally receiving hell in his body, God, I recognize that it was in my place that he did those things. And I come to you as a fallen sinner, broken and unqualified, And if you're willing to receive me where I am and take my sins and place them at the foot of that cross, I am willing to be made one with the Lord Jesus Christ. And if any person will come to God in that way, God will meet that person and give them saving faith. It's a faith that is gifted by God, but must be received by men. Perhaps that's you here tonight. I know that on a Wednesday night, probably a great percentage of us have made professing faith. We're already in the faith. But for us to think that just because you're here on a Wednesday night, that absolutely that means that you have, that would be just as foolish. And maybe tonight is the night that you need to say, Lord Jesus, I've been living in a false hope. I've been believing a false faith. But tonight, Lord, I want my life to come into perfect alignment with what you have established and ordained and I want my soul to be saved. I believe. And if that's you here tonight and you believe and you want to be saved, I would ask you right where you're sitting right now to just raise your hand up in the air and say, Yes, Jesus. I want to be saved. I believe. Father, I thank you tonight for your word. Thank you for your truth. I thank you for this faith. Thank you for what you've done in my life. I know who I was and I know who I am. And God, if not for your righteousness, if not for your son, oh Lord, where would I be? And I know that's the testimony of all, so many of us here. And I pray for those tonight that have raised their hands, for those that in their heart are responding to you by faith and that are saying, yes, Lord Jesus Christ, save me. And I pray, Lord, that their sin would be placed at the foot of the cross that your righteousness would be imparted to them and that in the person of your Holy Spirit they would be reconciled to God. And so, Lord, thank you for this night. Thank you for the things that have been spoken by your Spirit. Thank you for this letter of Jude. We pray, Lord God, that you would empower us to be contenders, fighters, standing zealously, joyfully upon this faith, this conviction that you've given. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name.